Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again this week. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit will join us. We ask that you will enlighten us and that we will be able to be your witnesses at this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson, uh, I guess it's lesson number six in the quarterly this week. Is that right? Lesson number six in the quarterly. And the title for this week's lesson is Laying Up Treasure in Heaven. And when you think of the the title, what, what comes to mind? Laying up treasure in heaven. Laying up treasure. When you think of treasure, treasure, do you think of Treasure Island, National Treasure, King Solomon's Mine, the various treasure movies and books that we've heard about in society? When you think of treasure, do you think of those types of things? Your life. My children. I think about my children. <laughs> oh, I like what somebody said there. That's good. That's good. I was going to say, do you think in a world where gold is used as pavement and jewels are used as foundation blocks for buildings and pearls are used for, for gates that, uh, that things as gold, jewels, and pearls would be considered treasure. No, I don't think the things we think was treasure on earth are really going to be the treasures of heaven. So wh- what do you consider a treasure in heaven? People, family, people, family. Okay. And how about on this earth? Despite what the world tries to convince us of, our as the treasures of this world, in those quiet moments of reflection, what are the things that you genuinely treasure the most? Isn't it the love of your spouse? Your five-year-old with grass stains on their knees and dirt on their face, bringing dandelions and saying, Mommy, I love you. Seeing your child give their heart to Jesus. Experiencing conversion, giving and being reborn and having peace with God and freedom from guilt and shame. Choosing to serve God and know that you are useful in God's cause for a higher purpose than simply accumulating earthly wealth. Is that a treasure? How about being part of a movement that advances the kingdom of God and sees other people freed from mental and emotional chains of sin and various false religions? Is that a treasure? To be part of that. So, as we think about this treasure in heaven, you know, what things do we treasure? What God, and think about our guardian angels that, that we all are thankful we have. What do you think they treasure? Well, it, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and somebody came and asked him a question. Let's go through this conversation that this young man has with, with Jesus. We find it um, in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, and we're going to unpack this all the way through chapter 20, verse 16, kind of go through it. But notice what it says, because in the middle, Jesus says something about treasure in heaven. Now, behold, one came and said to, to Jesus, good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? How does this man address Jesus? Does he acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, God in human form? No, he asserts that Jesus is no different than any other rabbi or teacher of the Torah. And where, so notice first off, his addressing of Jesus does, does not recognize him and who Jesus really is. Second, what is the primary focus of this man's concern? Self. Mm-hmm. Self. On securing for himself eternal life. Is his question, what must I do to have eternal life? The same question is asking, what must I do to bring honor to God? No. Or, what must I do to fulfill God's purpose for my life? Or, how can I serve God more fully? Or how can I know God's will for my life? Are, are these questions the same as the question he asked? How often do religions encourage the same focus as this man? In other words, how much of evangelism suggests that the primary gospel message is individual salvation? How can I be saved? 
And certainly we believe Jesus came to save sinners. Absolutely true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. There's no question about that. It should not perish, but have eternal life. But what does that truth say about God that he loves us so much that he would give his life to save us? Is that message, that truth that he gave his life to save us, ultimately about saving us, or does it really say something about the kind of being God is that he would do that for us? We can't comprehend it. It is good news that we can be saved from sin, but isn't it better news that God is a God of love? And we're called to bring, we are called to bring sinners to a knowledge of God and salvation, but can Christianity, if it takes the, the primary focus off of God and his character, methods, principles of love, and places the primary focus on us and what we need to do to be saved, if we do that, can Christianity become a burden? Something focusing on our behaviors, the do's and the don'ts, something that focuses on rule keeping, uh, focusing on our mistakes and sins, uh, focusing on how we can be cleansed, focusing on fear that maybe we haven't remembered all the sins to confess them all, to get them taken out of the books. In other words, can, if we put self and our sins at the center, Christianity itself become a burden? And so this man asking the question, what can I do to be saved? And how does Jesus respond? Here's, here's what the scripture says. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. What do you think Jesus is doing here? When Jesus said that no one is good but God, is Jesus suggesting that he is not fully God? No. No. Suggesting that he's quite the opposite. A little sarcastic. <laughs> he is suggesting to the man, if you don't recognize me as God, since you don't recognize me, since you relegate me to the role of teacher and don't recognize my true identity, why are you calling me good? Do you think human teachers are good? But if you are calling me good, do you recognize that I'm more than just a teacher? That only God is good? Are you actually recognizing, since you called me good, that I am, in fact, God here to save you? So this, this conversation wasn't in any way a declaration that Jesus was diminishing his divinity. It was a calling into question this man's mind. It was causing what we call in psychiatry cognitive dissonance having him reevaluate what he was saying and how he was addressing Jesus. Why do you think, though, that after he does this, introduces this you know, psychological depth charge that might explode in this guy's head sometime later as he reflects back on it? Um, why, why do you think Jesus then tells him if he wants to enter into life, he needs to keep the commandments? Is Jesus promoting rule-keeping? No. Oh, he's, 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 he's reflecting the young man's own belief. So he's kind of meeting the young man where the young man and the young man thinks rule keeping is important, doesn't he? For sure. Uh, is is there a, an element here though of truth, even though not even though Jesus is not promoting a legal religion, he's not promoting rule keeping. Is there some element of truth though about life being connected to the commandments and commandment keeping? Yes. <laughs> Can you have health while violating the laws of health? No. 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 no, he's trying to help this man understand that life, internal life, is only possible as we are restored to harmony with the laws that God built life to operate upon. The commandments are a succinct description of how love functions. Love honors others. Love doesn't seek uh, to harm or to exploit or to take advantage. Therefore, love never never murders. Love never cheats. Love never bears false witness or steals. Love doesn't even have a desire in its heart to, to hurt. So love doesn't even covet somebody else's possessions. So Jesus is saying, if you want to have life, you must be restored to my kingdom of love, and then you will keep my commandments. But the man didn't understand. It was just as was said, 
still thinking on the externals, on the behaviors, on the legals. And so the man said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Where in the Ten Commandments do you find the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Is that in the Ten Commandments? No. So why do you think after Jesus lists some of the Ten Commandments, he ends with you shall love your neighbor as yourself? What's he doing here? What's the implication? What does that statement do to the ones before it, being all included together in the instruction? It summarizes it. It certainly summarizes it, but it does something else. It certainly does. Makes them reflect about what preceded that statement. <laughs> Can you behaviorally, behaviorally not murder, not steal, not bear false witness? Can you behaviorally, actually, in the meaning here, love your neighbor as yourself? Or does love your neighbor as yourself go beyond just merely legal performance? Of course. Yeah. Yes. It's from the heart. So what Jesus is doing here is showing that the Ten Commandments are not legal. They're about attitudes of the heart. He connects the, the, the actual behaviors with the, origin, the origination motive, which is to be love. And he's and, and, and in understanding what he did, he just kind of deconstructed this idea of a legal behavior religion, uh, how earth, earth governments work. Love will not commit adultery, for instance. It just won't do that. Just think and just think how offensive it would be to you to consider doing some harmful thing to your child, some vile act against your own child. Part of you, because you love your child, repulses. It sickens you to even consider it. And in fact, you'd rather die than do that because you love your child as yourself. And this is what Jesus is trying to, to lead them to realize. When you love others, it is not a bunch of rules. It's not hard work not to, to do these things. This is what you actually do. You don't do that stuff. How did the man respond to it? Did the man respond by saying, yes, I have loved other people like this my entire life? No. He didn't actually say that. He focused on the rules. I've kept these rules my entire life. Now, consider what he said after he said, I've, done, I've kept these my whole life. And then he said, what else do I lack? What's implied in the story that this man, in his own mind, thinks he's obeying all the commandments, but he comes to Jesus asking, what must I do to have eternal life? And then after Jesus sells the commandments, what he says he's been doing his whole life, he says, what do I lack? Doesn't that imply he's aware yes. something's still missing? Yes. yes. Yeah. Legal rule-keeping does not remove guilt does not remove shame, does not take away fear, does not clear the conscience, does not bring peace with God. He is not at peace with God. His heart has not been reborn. He's got the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's still something is wrong. He's got that existential, uneasy anxiety where he doesn't feel at peace, uh, but he's been keeping the rules. But his questions are very clear. He's still missing something. And what happens to religious people who keep a list of rules like this young man, but have not had their heart changed, have not found peace with God that comes from a genuine rebirth experience. What happens to people who continue to feel like something's missing because they actually haven't had their heart changed, but they're rule-keeping and they're trying? What happens to them? What kind of people do they become? Do they become patient and kind and understanding and merciful and gracious? Or do they become legalistic, judgmental, pharisaical, critical, controlling, imperialistic, just like the Jews who crucified Jesus? Those religious rule keepers. And notice what Jesus tells them. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell 
what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. We're talking about treasure in heaven today. Is Jesus setting up a new rule, a new command? If you want to have treasure in heaven, if you want to be perfect, if you want to enter eternal life, then all you have to do is go sell everything you own and give it away to the poor people, and then you get treasure in heaven. Are we to enter a monastery, a nunnery, a commune, a cloister, or perhaps like Simon Stylites, who in Spain between 390 and 459 AD built up a pl platform on top of a pillar, climbed up on top of the uh, pillar, lived on this platform for the next 37 years of his life, uh, owning nothing, interacting with nobody so he could live a sinless life because if he didn't interact with anybody, he couldn't break any of the commandments. Is this what it means to be perfect? With Simon Stylites isolating himself away from all human contact, living a perfect life. No, no. Mm. Selfish. Is it about task performance, rule keeping, commandment compliance, or is it about maturing in some way, in character, in love and trust with God? Remember Job described as perfect in all his ways? What made Job perfect? He had a perfect trust relationship. He didn't have all the questions. He had many questions still to be answered. He had, had a, a lot of turmoil, but he never broke trust with God. He kept going to God for the solutions and the answers to his questions. So Jesus is telling him if he wants to be perfect, then he needs to stop trusting in earthly wealth Stop trusting in rule-keeping. Stop trusting in religious rituals. Stop trusting in membership in the right church organization and start trusting in Jesus. Amen. So how is giving to the poor then establishing treasure in heaven? Is there an angelic accountant in heaven that keeps track of all your donations to Goodwill, the Samaritan Center, the food kitchen, your local church, and every time you donate, you get credits on a registry in heaven so that when you get there, you will have more stars in your crown, a bigger mansion, and a larger estate than those who gave less than you. <laughs> it's surrendering everything to him, his heart, um, everything he has, and that surrender was would signify a desire to follow him. So what is the treasure in heaven that Jesus tells him to have by doing this act? Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. What, what is the treasure he will have in heaven? His character. His character. Oh, his character. So does giving to others from the right motive have an impact on our hearts, our characters? Uh, does it, would, would, would giving away all his wealth put him in a position that his trust in Jesus could grow. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And is having a genuine, life-changing trust in Jesus a treasure? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what is it that God treasures for us and in us? As a, as a parent, if you see your child spontaneously give something of theirs to some other child in need, do you treasure that? Yeah. 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 So, continuing on with our scripture. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus has answered his question. He came here. I'm not at peace. What else do I need to have eternal life? What else do I lack? And Jesus gave him a truthful, direct, and clear answer. And he wasn't satisfied. He was sorrowful. He got the answer to it. Man, imagine you could go and talk to Jesus and get an answer that was really substantive to your question. Why did he leave sorrowful rather than rejoicing? <laughs> he trusted his wealth, not in Jesus. Because he put his trust in wealth, not in Jesus. And that's what this exposed, that his security, his peace, his sense of safety was not coming from a relationship with God, but was coming from his possessions and his own personal performance and law-keeping. And think this through now. 
if you had a child, just say, say you had children that you love with all your heart, and they were kidnapped, and the kidnapper was demanding $50 million to return your children unharmed, and you went and scraped together everything you own, and you just scraped together exactly $50 million, would you go away sad because you discovered you had great wealth, or would you go away with great rejoicing because you had great wealth? Would you be sad to discover you have $50 million? You'd be rejoicing so that you could use that $50 million to... Gain your child. Free the child. Free your children. Yeah. Yeah. So your treasure is not the, the $50 million. Your treasure is the children. Isn't that right? Yes. And you consider then Zacchaeus' response... When Jesus was visiting his home in Luke 19, 8 through 10, it says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, here, now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek that and save that which, which was lost. Do you notice the difference between Zacchaeus' response and that of the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus found something he valued more than money. And he suddenly found joy in using his money to help others. Can't, can't you imagine, that the Bible doesn't tell us the rest of his life, but can't you imagine after that, that it wasn't just a one-time event, that his reorientation of what he loved, he wanted to be like Jesus, that he used his wealth from that time on for the rest of his life to find people to help, and he helped others. But wait, Zacchaeus only gave half his wealth to the poor and, uh, and paid back four times what he took fraudulently. He kept some of his wealth for himself. Didn't Jesus say to be perfect, the man must give away all his possessions? Zacchaeus didn't, didn't meet this criteria. Therefore, Zacchaeus did not find salvation, as Jesus said. Jesus con contradicts himself. Yes or no? No. No it's, not, no, it's not a contradiction because it's not what Jesus reveals with the story of Zacchaeus is it's not about the objective material possessions. It's about the heart's attitude towards the possessions. And Zacchaeus had had his heart attitude set right where his, his love for wealth was severed and his love for God was established. And therefore, it didn't matter whether he gave 50%, 75% or whatever. It was coming from a heart that didn't care about the wealth anymore. It cared about honoring God and loving others. And that's what it, what it was really about. It wasn't a rule to be achieved. The, the rich young ruler didn't have this heart change. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say it to you. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Why were the disciples astonished? Because they believed in their day, it was a common belief, that if you were healthy and wealthy, it was because you were blessed of God. And if you were poor and sick, it's because you were out of harmony with God. And blessings come from, from living a, a life as God would have you live. So health and wealth were evidence that you were not a, you know, you're not living a sinful life. If you're sick and poor, well, you must be a sinner in some way. And so it was very much a common belief that if you were wealthy, you were righteous. And so, or you were good. And so what they hear Jesus saying is it's easier for um, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a good man to enter heaven, for a righteous man to have, enter heaven, because they equated riches with righteousness and goodness. So this is why it really, really was distressing to them. But they had a false belief about health and wealth. They forgot the story of Job and how Job was declared to be perfect and righteous and lost his health and wealth. The same false belief came up when they asked him, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Same idea was over the sickness side of it. And Jesus said, of course, neither. But Jesus looked to them and said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What's Jesus saying? With men, what's impossible? With God, all things are, impo all things are possible. What's he saying? 
What's impossible for us to do on our own, in our own strength? Save ourselves. <laughs> Save ourselves. We can't change our own hearts. We can't create godly desires, affections. We can't uh, create genuine love within. But God can transform our hearts, cut away the lust for the things of this world, establish his methods in our hearts if we trust him and invite him in. We must choose to say yes to God, and God does the healing and transforming as we say yes and follow where he leads. It's our choice. It's his transforming and healing power. Then Peter answered and said to him, notice this. Notice what we just went through. Notice what Jesus is trying to teach them, okay? All about wealth, what he just said, okay? And notice Peter's response. See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? What is Peter doing here? Can't you just see if you in your imagination, Peter going, oh, rubbing his hands and going, oh, goody, goody, we've given up a lot. What are we going to get? <laughs> Can't you see it? What's our reward? And so doesn't this reveal that Peter still had some growing and healing and maturing to do? Don't don't you love Peter? I love God, love the Bible, love how the Holy Scriptures are inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures to record stories just like Peter because he's so much like me, so much like us. We have this, you know, we have these same thoughts at times in our journey, don't we? Um, What are we going to get? What are we going to get? But then as we grow, it's not so much about what we're going to get as much as what what are we going to give. Amen. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. Notice what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the... In the generation, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of, of glory, you will have you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who but many who are first will be last, and the last first. What's Jesus saying here? Is he focusing on earthly success? Accolades, wealth, accomplishments, awards, trophies, or heavenly success. When he comes again. And when he comes again, isn't it true that every single sacrifice or thing we gave up here for Jesus will pale in comparison to what we receive there? What of the idea of the first being last and the last being first? What do you think of that? What is valued most in God's kingdom? Power? Service. Love. Love, I heard somebody say. Somebody said service. Yes. In John 8, when all power was given to Jesus, what did he do with the power? He got up and washed dirty feet. That's what he did. Philippians 2 says that even though Jesus was equal with God, he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant. All the way down to the cross, sacrificing himself in order to uplift those of us dying in sin. This is the exact opposite. And, of course, Jesus sacrificing over the cross and giving of himself for us, it says he is then exalted to the highest position. Those who give the most are esteemed and loved the most, is, is the point here. But it's the exact opposite of Satan's kingdom. <laughs> Satan's kingdom of power over others, taking from others to empower oneself and elevate, elevate oneself. And all the kingdoms of the world have few ruling elites who tax and exploit and enslave and demand and take from the masses in order to empower the few ruling elites over the masses. Every human government in history has done this. Every human corporation ends up uh, in some way uh, historically doing this. And in Jesus' kingdom, the one that sacrifices the most is the one who's honored and glorified the most. And then Jesus tells them this parable. I want you to think, if you're a business person, a business owner, an employee, I want you to think running your business like this today or an employee being compensated for your work like this today. And this is what Jesus told them. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning and hired laborers for, laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard. 
And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and what is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said, why have you been standing idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said, you also go into the vineyard and, and uh, whatever is right, you will receive. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to a steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, few are chosen. How would you, what do you think about a business running like this today? <laughs> is the landowner being unfair? pack it here in a second, the actors, the landowner, the workers, the wages, but this, this exposes powerfully the fallacy of human law being the basis of God's kingdom. The imposed law lies exposed here quite powerfully. The workers who worked one hour got the same pay as the workers who worked all day. Imagine, in fact, if, if, this, if, if this would have been, instead of just the way it's described, how about if the the workers who worked all day and got a, a, a denarius were people of color, and the people who came at one hour and only worked one hour and got the same pay were white people. You see, it, it, would that be fair? Would that be prejudice? Would that be bias? Would that be racism? You know, it's totally unfair if you have an imposed law lens of looking at things the way the world does. But if you have a design law lens and understand how reality works, we immediately understand how beautiful and fair God's kingdom is. The field is this earth. The vineyard are are uh, and and the and the remember the grapes are, are are the fruitful the fruitful vine the people who are growing and developing fruits of character. We're out to go and harvest harvest in a harvest of souls, and so Jesus sends his workers, those who have accepted him, out into the world to bring in a harvest of souls. The payment for becoming part of one of Jesus' team and working with him, the payment is eternal life. This is the reward. Those that work with Jesus receive eternal life if they've worked all day. Those who work just an hour at the end but work with Jesus also receive eternal life. There's nothing unfair in this. But those who worked all day, well, they all receive eternal life. The ones who work all day have a lifetime of experiences working with Jesus. They grow more proficient in his methods and principles and practices. They mature in character. They gain wisdom and discernment, whereas the one who works just an hour receives eternal life but hasn't had the joys and experiences of a shared life working for the master. So the thief who accepted Jesus on the cross received the payment of eternal life, but he didn't get the joy of ministering to others and see others come to the knowledge of salvation through uh, being able to share the gospel with them and didn't grow in maturity and, and so forth. And so in God's kingdom, those who labored the most while they got eternal life also had experiences and maturation of character that those who worked just an hour didn't experience. Do you see how the design law of you makes this absolutely beautiful? But if we read this with a human law of you, it makes it arbitrary and unfair. Sunday's lesson is about Noah and how Noah's life drastically changed when he followed God's command to build the ark. Second paragraph of the lesson says, Noah could have spent his time and resources building a home for himself, but he chose to make a drastic change in his life and to spend 120 years of that life following the call of God to build the ark. 
this? Absolutely true. Yes, Noah had the freedom to choose to spend his time and resources on himself, but he could not do that if he also wanted to be loyal to God, keep open the avenue for the promised Messiah to come, help save his family, help save his friends and other humans, help save the animals, help save himself. In other words, this choice wasn't simply about building houses for self. It was really about, and it wasn't even about temporal life. His choice was about whether he wanted to participate with God for eternal life for himself, his family, his descendants, and, and fulfilling God's purpose. The third paragraph reads, Many skeptics today dismiss the story of the flood as myth, often based on scientific speculation about the known laws of nature. This is nothing new. The world before the flood reasoned that for centuries the laws of nature had been fixed, the recurring seasons that come in their order. Heretofore, uh, rain had never fallen. The earth had been watered by mist or dew. The rivers had never passed their boundaries, but, um, but had borne their waters safely to the sea. Fixed decrees had kept the waters from overflowing their banks. Before the flood, people argued that the flood could never come based on faulty understanding of reality. After the flood, based on the faulty understanding of reality, they argued that it never came to begin with. Did any of you read read my blog for this week? Uh Yes. (laughs) You see, we're finding ourselves in a very similar situation. Understand that uh, if we approach the world from a biblical worldview, there are two antagonistic forces on planet Earth. God's kingdom of truth, love, and freedom against Satan's kingdom of lies, selfishness, and coercion. These two systems originate from two different living beings. Our infinite God of love, who is the source of all truth, love, righteousness, purity, holiness, virtue, goodness, life itself. And Satan, who is the originator of lies, selfishness, evil, pain, suffering, disease, deformity, and death. God's agencies of light battle Satan's agencies of darkness. God is constantly seeking to lead us out of the darkness of misunderstanding, confusion, and error, and into truth. And throughout human history, Satan has been actively and persistently and effectively introducing lies, what you might call false narratives, which are intended to replace the truth to entrap hearts and minds in selfishness. In Eden... God warned that breaking trust with him and violating his laws, the laws that life were built upon, would result in ruin and death. Satan advanced an alternative narrative that God had lied, that in fact God, the warning was not to pr- protect Adam and Eve from death, but was to hoard power for God, and that if they did uh, follow their own desires, they would become like God themselves. A false narrative. Sadly, they believed the false narrative, and the world was entered into sin. Cain accepted a false narrative and rejected God's directions, substituted his own works. And the inevitable, unavoidable result was corruption of character, jealousy, and envy, and he murdered his brother Abel. At the time of the flood, at the time of Noah, uh, the message God sent was the message of impending climate disaster. The world would be destroyed by a worldwide flood in 120 years, and Noah faithfully preached that message to the world that climate disaster was coming, and the only way of salvation was to get on the ark. But the ungodly, we just read it in the paragraph, had an alternative narrative. You can hear the media pundits of the day and the scientific experts calling Noah an extremist, an alarmist, a conspiracy theorist, a crazy person, um, that science has proved this could not happen. An alternative narrative to the message from God. And Jesus, Jesus sheds light on this in Matthew 24, 37 to 39. This is what Jesus said. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Wait a second. The Bible is clear. Noah preached impending disaster, climate change flood for 120 years. But Jesus said the people knew nothing about it. What? 
How could they know nothing about it if he's preaching for 120 years? Because there was an alternative narrative. They rejected the message of God. They embraced the lies of the pundits of the day. And therefore, they did not consider what Noah was saying worthy of consideration or belief. They didn't really comprehend it or take it in or consider it. They didn't know. Willfully rejecting truth, preferring the narrative of the day. Now, if you live back in Noah's day, I just want you, and you said, well, if I was back in Noah's day, I would have believed Noah. Well, if you have family friends that say that, you have your opportunity right now today to prove that to be true. Because we have the exact, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus said. His second coming is approaching. And we have another reversal but exact dynamic that Noah's day went through. After the flood, God gave a promise in Genesis 8.22. And this is what God promised. He gave two promises. One, the world will never be destroyed by a flood and live the rainbow. But he also gave this promise, Genesis 8.22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God promised that our climate and our seasons will continue stably until Christ comes, as long as the earth endures. But Satan has a false narrative, an alternative narrative of this corrupt world given by the godless, the evolutionists, those who reject the scriptures of impending climate disaster. The end of human life through our destruction of the planet through a a climate event. And just like the antediluvians, you, me, and every person on earth right now has to decide. Will we believe the word of God? Or we believe the evolutionists, the pundits, the scientists, the godless, the same people that foisted COVID mandates on us and restricted our freedoms and hurt our children? Or will we believe our creator? Believe our creator. Because I'm telling you, I, 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 so many Christians I know believe the climate change propaganda. Mm. So many Christians I know. We are not facing a climate disaster. I want you to understand this. We are facing a worldwide spiritual disaster. Not the global warming, but the global cooling of human hearts. As Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. And as human hearts grow cold, the Holy Spirit is withdrawn. As the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, Satan is given more liberty. That four angels loosen their four winds of strife. As the four winds loosen, they blow on the land and the sea. And there's more natural disasters and more climate problems occur, not because of man-made activity of what we're doing in the environment, but because of how we're hardening our heart. And Satan is given more liberty to cause problems. Understand really what's happening. Next week in my blog on Thursday, I will actually show you that, in fact, the, the climate lie is, well, we're burning fossil fuels. The burning of the fossil fuels is putting CO2 in the air, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is warming the atmosphere. The warming atmosphere is going to cause us to have a less green planet, a wasteland. It's going to melt the polar ice caps. We're going to have flooding everywhere. We're going to destroy ourselves. Have you heard this narrative? It's exactly the opposite. Understand, prior to the biblical flood, which the so-called greenies of today do not believe in, they do not believe the world was created by God. They do not believe that prior to the flood, the earth was a vast greenhouse covered with incredible plant and animal life from pole to pole. It was an absolute rich with life planet with, without these massive oceans that we currently have. And at the time of the flood, the vast majority of all living organisms, plant and animal organisms, were buried deep in the earth, forming our gas, oil, and coal fields. That's all that organic material buried in the earth, forming the fossil fuels that we burn today. The water was squished out of all of those living organisms. Because understand, for living organisms on planet earth, the two primary elements that that living organisms are made out of, carbon and water, carbon and water. 
the carbon at the time of the flood that, that God created almost the entire planet's living organisms, the whole planet was covered, got buried in the earth. The water got squished out and returned to the water tables. We have these huge oceans, and we have much of it now sequestered in the polar ice caps. As we have been burning fossil fuels, we've been taking that carbon and returning it into the ecosystem. And guess what plants breathe in? They breathe in carbon dioxide, and that carbon becomes building blocks, and plant life thrives and increases. And since 1981, we've been, we've been measuring, we've had a significant reduction in deserts and wastelands of the Earth, equivalent to about the approximate size of the continental United States. The Earth has become more green. The oceans don't rise because as we melt some of the polar ice caps, in order to have more plant life, that water is it goes into the atmosphere. It becomes uh, part of the um, storm systems and then is rained over parts of the land and the plants take it up and it, and, it, and it actually restores water into the soils and the dry desert lands are shrinking as the earth becomes ever more human habitable. It is the exact opposite of what the climate change liars are teaching. That, that's what's happening in the world. Remember, there's a biblical worldview and there's a godless worldview. At the time of the flood, Noah preached for 120 years climate disaster and the godless denied it. Now we have a promise from God that the seasons will not change until as long as the earth endures, our climate will remain stable. But the godless today are doing just the opposite. And what is the purpose of the climate disaster messaging? Understand its purpose. Its purpose is not to actually make the planet more human friendly. Its purpose is to take liberties from the people and empower the few ruling elites with more wealth, more control, and more power. That's its real purpose. Any questions about that? Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson is about Abraham trusting God leaving his home and following God's calling in, in his life. The lesson emphasizes that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we know that was because through Abraham's descendant, Jesus comes. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and uh, provide salvation for the human race. And so what we're discovering is that here with Abraham, God is declaring and letting, letting be known which branch of the human family will God fulfill the promise given to Adam and Eve to send a savior through. And this is how all the world will be blessed through Abraham's seed or descendant. But God gives an additional promise that um, Abraham's children would inherit some, the land. Now understand that this is a Dual, I'm going to kind of really truncate this. I've written a blog about it. I'm going to kind of truncate this. But the question I have, have for you today, the promises given to Abraham were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not given to Abraham's children through Ishmael. They were not given to Abraham's children through Isaac and Esau. They were given to Abraham's children through Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and ultimately down through Judah. And this is where the Bible focuses our attention and why we don't follow all of Abraham's other children through the Scripture narrative, because the focal lens of Scripture is on the plan of salvation, the coming Messiah. The question then today and the promise that was given to Abraham about his children will inherit the land there, all this land I will give you. What about the nation state of Israel today? Is the nation state of Israel today part of the promise given to Abraham back at that time. Many people around the world believe that to be the case. And there's no doubt that, that at all that God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promising them the land in that part of the world. But it, the question is, is the nation state of Israel today part of that prop, promise or not? No. 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 They're not part of it. Uh, my view is that, in fact, the promise, if you look at the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were two promises. There's a dual fulfillment promise. Uh, and the Bible is filled with dual fulfillment promise, pro, promises or prophecies 
Uh, Joel's prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before the second coming of Christ was also fulfilled according to Scripture uh, when uh, at the day of Pentecost, and it's described in Acts chapter two. We have a regional application on the apostles when the on the uh, at Pentecost when the spirit was spirit was poured out for the advancement of the gospel in in uh, Europe, and then we have a global outpouring that's going to happen uh, before the second coming. We have the prophecy of Isaiah in Ezekiel 28 that starts out with a local ruler and then transitions to the fall of Lucifer. We have Jesus' prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem transitioning to the second coming of Christ. We have these dual fulfillment things throughout Scripture. And there was a promise given to Adam and Eve in Eden, Genesis 3.15, that the promised Messiah is going to come. And then this promise was repeated to Abraham, letting us know it was through his family that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so what we discover is that God says, through your family, Messiah is going to come, through which the whole world can be saved, and your family will inherit this land in order to fulfill the purpose of bringing forth the Messiah so that all the nations of the world can be blessed. And you actually see that uh, there were two promises uh, given, or more than two promises if you read the Genesis account, uh, that describe this uh, this inheritance given to Abraham. One, in Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offsprings I will give the land. This is the regional promise. Your biological descendants will inherit this land in order to be the branch of the human family through, this, through which the seed, the Messiah, will be born so that the whole world can be blessed. And here's the promise of the larger inheritance. Genesis 13, 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you, you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. This is the larger global promise that the entire earth, east, west, north, south, all points of the compass will be given to the people of God and the earth will be made new. And just as uh, Jesus promised, the meek shall inherit the earth. And these are the people considered the children of Abraham on the larger promise. And Paul, who was a, uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees a, of the tribe of Benjamin, wrote the following in Galatians 3. 26 to 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise given to Abraham. What promise? That you shall inherit the land. What land? North, south, east, west, the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, this is the promise, the larger promise that we inherit through the seed, Jesus, that the, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus himself explicitly told the Jewish leaders in their day that genetics did not determine who is considered an heir of Abraham and an inheritor of the promise. Notice what Jesus said in John 8, starting in 30, verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Notice this. If we don't experience freedom from sin, if we remain a slave to sin, Jesus is saying, then a slave to sin does not have membership in the family of God. We have to be set free from our slavery to sin in order to become sons of God. And how are we set free from slavery of sin? Through faith. And who is the father of the faithful? Abraham. And so those who have faith like Abraham are no longer slaves to sin. They're part of the family of God. So Jesus goes on to say, so if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you that I have what I have seen in the father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus tells them plainly that even though they are genetic descendants of Abraham, God doesn't see them as being children of Abraham, but children of their father, a different father. The, Jew, the Jews, though, 
to whom Jesus was speaking, understood his point and protested, claiming their genetic heritage. They said, quote, Abraham is our father, they answered. Jesus' response disallows their genetics as being a valid basis for being considered a descendant of Abraham, meaning an heir according to the promise. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. In other words, those recognized by God as children of Abraham are those who have the same faith as Abraham and who act faithfully in relation with God as Abraham did. As it is, Jesus says, you are determined to kill me and a man a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such thing. You are doing the things your own father does. Notice Jesus is making very clear. Their father isn't Abraham. Jesus tells them their genetics doesn't matter. What matters is who image do they bear? Who are they like? Are they the image bearers of God? Or are they the image bearers of Satan? And they have embraced another image than the image of God, and they are like their father, the liar, the murderer from the beginning, Satan. That's whose children they are, because that's who they are in character. But they protest again. They said, we are not illegitimate children. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. So the Jews elevate from Abraham, now claim his father, uh, God is their father through creation. But Jesus disallows this claim as well, uh, we are all born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Uh, Jesus already said that those who remain slaves to sin because of our birth in sin have no permanent place in the family of God. He's already said that. Only those who through faith in Jesus are freed and lets the Son set them free become members of the family and are considered heirs of Abraham and children. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me. For I came from God and now, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar and the father of all lies. Jesus, again, unequivocally destroys this idea that genetics determine who's considered an heir of Abraham and makes it clear that those who have faith like Abraham and therefore through faith develop character like Jesus are members of the family of God and considered heirs of Abraham and uh, inheritors of the promises, meaning the promised land that we're promised. And so the dual fulfillment prophecy had two starting points and two ending points. The starting point of the global promise started in Eden, Genesis 3.15. And the starting point of the regional promise of the biological uh, branch of the human family through whom Jesus was born started when God gave the promise to Abraham and called him out of Ur. The ending point of the global promise is when Jesus recreates the earth anew and the meek inherit the earth, the promised land. The ending point of the regional promise to the branch of the human family through which Jesus was born was when they rejected him as Messiah and did not take the good news about him to the world. And Jesus said to them, your house is left to you desolate. And Jesus masterfully weaves that together in the prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming, Jerusalem being destroyed, the end of the global promise, land promise, and then the second coming is the end of the, glo uh, the, the regional promise when Jerusalem was born. And the second coming, the end of the global promise when we do inherit the earth. And this is all then faithfully described further for us in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, what we have described in the book of Hebrews uh, are the, at one of the chapters there, one of the faithful, of the chapters of the faithful. And who do we find in the chapter of the faithful? We have Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and many more. And this is what it says after they describe the faithful. The Bible says that they lived in, quote, the promised land, unquote. But it says, quote, they did not receive the things promised. They were looking forward to a city and foundation whose architect and builder is God. And then the Bible says this, all these people, all these people that it listed did not receive the things promised they saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. 
They were living in so-called promised land. They did not receive the things promised. And it says all of the people in, in that whole list. And who was in that list? Enoch was in that list. Enoch, who has walked into heaven. Enoch, who has eternal life. Enoch, who worships God face to face. Enoch, who has his immortal body. The Bible says, did not receive the things promised. Why? Because in its fullest sense, the promise is the meek shall inherit the earth. And Enoch will not receive that full promise until at the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem comes down and Jesus recreates the earth anew. And then the inheritors of the promise of Abraham receive the new earth. It's really beautiful. So my view, no, the the nation state of Israel today does not represent either one of the promises given. The regional promise that ended 2,000 years ago when they crucified Christ and the global promise are to all of those who have faith like Abraham become an heir of Abraham and we will inherit the earth when Jesus makes it new again. Any questions? All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you provided through Jesus. We thank you for the way you run your universe, for your design laws, for how things beautifully harmonize together. We open our hearts, ask for the Spirit to come. Make us be image bearers like you transform us, that we are children of faith, descendants of the faithful Abraham, heirs according to the promise, and we long, just like the faithful in in, in Hebrews, long for a better land, long for an earth made new, long for a place where there's no more crime or wickedness or lies or deceit or pain or suffering or death. We long for that day, Lord, and we ask that you will help us fulfill your purpose and hasten that day. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.